here's where I want to start, okay? I want to start with, um, I know some of you guys don't use this, but all of you in some regards probably have this somewhere. Uh, go ahead and put up this first slide for me. This is what the Google Calendar looks like really zoomed in, okay? And this is, this is today. Now, if I gave you a, uh, um, a pen or as it were in this case, a keyboard, and I said, all right, I want you to type in exactly how you would like your day to go. You had like free reign, like all of a sudden you held the sovereign pen in your hand or the sovereign keyboard under your fingertips. What, what would you prescribe for your day? Like how would you want these hours from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. to look like? My guess, my guess is, this is my assumption, is that most of you wouldn't want this. Next slide. So 7 a.m., complain, wake up complaining about something insignificant. 8 a.m., continue to dwell on said insignificant thing. 9 a.m., grumble about the weather. 10, feel sorry while eating 16 bags of Kit Kats. 11 a.m., you get an awesome phone call, so you listen to someone else's grumblings and agree with them only to add further grumble. And then at 1-ish, realize it's 1 and you, you wonder where the time has gone. So... Right, like this, no, like this isn't on your, on your Google Calendar. This hasn't found its way into, you know, your, your calendar if, if you guys are not digital yet. Um, this isn't how we would want it to go. But it's crazy, right, how often we get to 1 p.m. and we're like, or 3 p.m. or 4 p.m., and that's exactly how it's gone. Our day has been riddled with uh, pessimism and negativity and grumbling and murmuring. Uh, it's been um, controlled, it seems, by gossip and judgment. And um, when you start racking up those days collectively, then, then you're forced to, um, to look back on the weeks and the months and ask yourself this question, what am I doing with my life? Um, listen, I, I, I want to be as vulnerable tonight as I would ask of you, but I want us tonight to really look inwardly. This is one of those nights where it would be easy to point fingers as we journey through. It's going to be easy for you to think to yourself like, oh, I know someone like that. Oh, I'm really glad you're pointing this out because I've been dealing with, uh, this, with this situation with a friend that's here. I hope they're taking notes and listening, right? And you're like, even text them, oh, hey, uh, I, see your, I see your plan on your phone. You might want to, you know, you might want to zoom into this one, right? Let's all together tonight just take a, a deep breath back Ask God to work on our hearts. Ask us to be real about where we're at, each of us, individually, myself, you, us together, okay? So I'm going to pray for that to happen. And just, you know, I'd like to say that I've been this excited um, before uh, in Philippians, but guys, this, this, this passage absolutely has me. So let's pray, and we're going to journey through it together. Father, um, um, please, God, I, I don't... I don't want to get in the way of your move tonight. I don't want any of my words to be said. So I pray that, that your word will speak for itself. I thank you, God, for this ancient letter that is so relevant. I pray, God, that you would break down the walls and barriers that maybe we've walked in here with that has put on a fake smile or has acted like we're better than we are. Um, we're just confessing to you tonight that all of us together are in desperate need of you. So we pray all this in your great name. Amen. So open your uh, Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to end uh, the chapter 2 tonight, okay? So if you've been looking ahead, that means we got some coverage to do tonight, okay? All the way from verses 12 to verses 30. So it's a whole lot, all right? But we're going to uh, head to it. 
A few sections we'll be able to move through a little bit more expediently, so I will uh, have you out of here, Lord willing, by 9. Let's start here at uh, verse uh, 12. Therefore, and let's go ahead and stop. It's going to be a long night. Um, <laughs> so if you're an English major, you spend any time reading any, anything, okay, you know that the word therefore is significant, uh, scripture included, because it's there so that you know what the rest of it is there for, right? That's what my teacher taught me. And so the word therefore is connecting what Paul's about to write to the church in Philippi to what he has just written about. And if you were here last week, and even if you weren't, let me catch you up. What he talked about last week was the obedience of the Lord Jesus to death, even death on a cross. He talks about um, Christ's humility, uh, Christ, um, the, the depth of Christ's love that leads him to listen to the Father and to leave the heavenly realms. And more specifically in verses 9, 10, and 11, Paul writes that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is, you guys remember the word? Lord, not just prophet, not teacher, not healer, not nice guy. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is our great hope, my friends. So now he moves on from that thought, connects the previous with the coming with the word therefore. Therefore, he says, my beloved. Okay, you guys have seen his affection for the church in Philippi over and over. This isn't a distant pen pal that cares not about his people. This is a shepherd and a pastor that would bleed out for the lives of those that he leads. He says, therefore, my beloved, look at this. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Interesting. This exposes our, yes, our, you and I's weak theology. Let me explain. You're like, whoa, 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 hey, step back, Mark. Like, don't be, come on. I'm, I've included myself in it. This statement ex exposes our weak theology. Here's how. Some of the most heinous sins that you have ever encountered, done, participated in have been because you believe that people weren't watching. Some of the most heinous things in your life you have done because you believe no one saw them. And so you indulged, or at least the company was secure, right? One, maybe two, the thoughts that you've had, the things that you've done alone, right? Like, it's much more difficult to obey when we believe no one's watching. Would you guys agree with that statement? Okay. When there's like ultimate accountability, like for instance, some of the most heinous things you guys have ever done, my guess is, my assumption is, you wouldn't stand right up here in front of the rest of the body and do that. And some of you have the heinous horrific things that you've done and now you're thinking about doing that or thinking that or communicating that in front of the rest of the body and now all of a sudden the point hits home. Now, why does this expose our weak theology? Well, here's what I know about our God is that he is omniscient and omnipresent. Omniscient, omnipresent. That means he is everywhere at all times and knows all. We could add, add into it sovereign. So it's yet another way that we put people ahead of our relationship with God. We say if people are around, if people are seeing us, then I'm going to be a little bit slower to indulge in the same things, diminishing the omniscience and omnipresence of a person who's much greater than any relationship we have in human form. Would you agree? So we lessen it 
And we say, well, God's not watching. God doesn't care. God is distant. But the scripture actually points to something that's exactly the opposite. God is near. God is with us. God is seeing. He is watching. Romans 5 says, though, though he knew that we would be sinners, he still died. So knowing all of those things. So I just want to expose right now uh, some of the cracks in our theology and say what Paul is, is trying to help this church understand. Like, listen, I, you obeyed while I was there. I'm longing that you would keep in that even though I'm not. Because the Lord is always watching. Then he goes on to say something really interesting. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here we go. This has been the topic of many a Bible study, Right? Many a college class have gotten to this juncture, to this passage, and all of a sudden things get a little dicey. Well, when things get dicey, I like to lean in on my good buddy, Charles Spurgeon. He's dead, but he's awesome. Check this out, okay? These words, talking about this text in particular, these words as they stand in the New Testament contain no exhortation to all men, but are directed to the who? To the people of God. They are not intended as an exhortation to the unconverted. They are, as we find them in the epistle, beyond all question, addressed to those who have already saved through a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So now all of a sudden we have a little bit of, 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 a, of a specific understanding of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Does that make sense? If it's addressed to those who are already believers, which makes sense because he just called them beloved, which makes sense because he's writing to the church in Philippi, then that means the working out must bear with it a little bit of a, some different significance. Let me put it to you this way. So um, when I was a quarterback in college, uh, I know my stature doesn't say so, but I used, I used to work out, um, right? And you're laughing and I don't appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but, but I used to work out, so yes, I would bench press, and, and yes, I would, you know, I would do a, a, a couple curls for the girls. And in that case, it was Heidi, okay, because we were already dating. Um, I, I, I would work out. But I was already a member of the football team. So I was a member of the football team, but I was, I was working out because if I didn't, then like, I, I would lose some of the things that I, I had been given in terms of I had a chance to continue to grow and, and mature and develop. And maybe, just maybe, not just be a starting holder, but maybe the starting quarterback. And so my working out was, was the desire to continue to grow and mature. That exact kind of thinking is what Paul is saying here. Work out your salvation in a means of sanctification, continually growing, he says. Now I want you to go back, if you can, up to the previous slide, Andrew, if you don't mind. Often, we don't study this verse with, with, with what verse 13 says. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to what? Work for his good pleasure. So the work of sanctification, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, is God's work. And yet somehow, as we always say here, God's sovereignty does not negate personal responsibility. So we're called here by Paul of the church of Philippi to continue to be sanctified to what end for his good pleasure and so the more that we mature 
the more we find our satisfaction solely in Christ, and then the more we tremble. The more when we think about his love, we work out or mature in our walk with Christ, with fear, not fear of death, but fear in terms of reverence and awe. On this topic, Spurgeon also says uh, this quote, skip ahead to that next Spurgeon quote, grace all sufficient dwells in you, believer. There is a living well within you springing up, he says about this text. Use the bucket then. Keep on drawing. You will never exhaust it. There is a living source within. We say all the time, you're not called to be stagnant. Uh, Stagnant water smells quickly. We're called to continue to work out our salvation, not because works gets a salvation, but works and faith must be married. And so we mature and we grow and we find ourselves more and more satisfied in Christ. Our theology and understanding of, uh, of Jesus deepens. That's what he's saying. And then the root of the issue tonight, the heart of the issue tonight, next slide, is seen in this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, here's what I love about studying the Bible, right? You read a passage, especially this passage, 12 to 30, and some would say like, all right, so working out your salvation, like that's gonna be really the the main focus tonight. But I got to this verse, and I was just like, oh my dear goodness. Do all things without grumbling or disputing? And, And I started to think about the makeup of our conversation. I started to think about the calendar that, that we thought we, we don't want to have, but that all of a sudden becomes our reality, it caused me to like question, like, how is this possible? Or even better, how can we possibly eradicate grumbling from our life, from our conversation? Now, I think our grumbling fits in uh, one of two categories for the most part. Obviously, there's exceptions to this. I think we grumble about things you can't do anything about. Okay, uh, there's all kinds of examples. I've talked about it uh, here before. Weather being one of them, right? Like it's inevitable. I mean, you go to an old person restaurant, seasoned person restaurant, right? Let's, Denny's, come on now, right? Right, okay? My dear friend works at Denny's. You go to Denny's, she's told me before, a lot of seasoned folks that are there. I'm guaranteeing you right now, if you start walking around that building, okay? Because I, I know what my grandparents talked about, like good chance you're talking about the weather, you know? Man, I can't believe, 96. Man, I can't believe it's 76. Man, I can't believe, right? Like, and on and on and on. It's just like this really strange thing. And and before we get any further, I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying in grumbling. The Greek word has this uh, understanding of, like, it's a murmuring. It's a complaint without an intent to do something, uh, I would even add, proactive about it. Um, that we could even add a little bit further, uh, that would be biblically understood and, and, and sound. And so it, it's just that, it's that complaining for complaining's sake. It's complaining because you, it seems like you don't have anything better to do. That's, that's what this is talking about. So we complain about things that uh, we can't do anything about, the weather, and there's so many other things. And then the opposite side, to encompass all of life, we grumble about things that we can do something about. Instead of being proactive, uh, we find ourselves um, in a situation today that I got to witness. I got to witness a brother work through both sides of this, having every single opportunity to grumble. 
It was both something that he couldn't do anything about and then something he could. And I got to witness like the dynamics of the situation and I got to watch this brother navigate through it and somehow in the end not grumble. And so it, it just, it caused me, guys, um, today, again, as I've been studying and preparing, to try to understand why is it that our heart is so bent on grumbling? Why is it that we're so um, uh, straight, uh, straight towards at times, these, these time uh, users that aren't fruitful at all? So I want to look at these things. Next slide. I hope, I hope these will be helpful. This is the powerful weight and impact that grumbling has, okay? How grumbling affects the body of Christ. Number one, it communicates that the gospel does not supersede the grumbling. So what it tells everyone around you is that the grumbling matters. Is that the grumbling for grumbling's sake, the murmuring, the backbiting, is that it's not superseded by the gospel, that, that the gospel isn't better. That's what I'm saying. And so every time you hear someone murmur or every time you murmur yourself, grumble about whatever the case may be, it's because in that moment you think and believe that the gospel isn't weighing over all of it. And so then you times that by all of the amount of conversation. Can you see how problematic this is then? That means that a good percentage of our conversation or at least a piece of our conversation is consistently saying, I have something better than the gospel. And so let's spend our time grumbling. Um, I, I got this image in my mind. What grumbling does to the body of Christ is it attempts to hold the body of Christ in a noose by its hand. I mean, seriously, I've been in so many board meetings and conversations under the confines of the church with other believers where we have spent days and weeks listening to grumbles and grumbling ourselves and getting nowhere. I don't want for one second for this concept of grumbling to hold us like a noose. It affects us. It's deeply powerful. The second way it affects us is this. It builds human loyalties around anti-missional causes. You start murmuring with others, which is a big reason why we murmur. We want loyalty. Hey, you get what I'm saying, right? Like, don't you share in this? And it could be about the silliest things. It could be about sports teams. It can be about relationships. It doesn't matter on both ends of the spectrum. You want people to rally around your heart. You want them to agree with you. And so it kills the body of Christ when all of a sudden things like that make entrance. And pretty soon what you find yourself is you've built this team. And the focal point of the team is grumbling. Is murmuring. Is negativity. We could even add a pessimism in all that. Some of you guys have groups uh, that are formed around that right now. The best thing for the body of Christ would be for God just to drop a grenade and just kill and purge all of that. And I would even say uh, cause massive repentance for that, whole group, for, for that whole group. There are groups in this body right now that must, must repent from the murmuring that's happening behind closed doors. Again, there's a difference between complaining, murmuring, grumbling, and biblically working through your issue. There's a complete difference. Okay? We cherish here in the body of Christ, uh, following passages like Matthew 18 that lay out for us how we're to deal with when a brother uh, causes sin against us. But some of you know right now, and, and I'm not, I don't have like, groups specifically in your mind, you're like, is he talking about me? No, like, I, I'm just saying 
You know it's you because behind closed doors, grumble, grumble, grumble. Fills your Google calendar. Number three, here's how grumbling affects the body of Christ. It wastes precious, precious time. Have you ever had one of those family dinner seshes, right? Where everyone sits around the table and you realize like all you've done in the entire conversation is complain. Can I ask you, uh, for those of you guys with kids, what are you teaching your children? When the conversation banter between you and your wife, you and your spouse, is about all the things that are wrong. And not how the Lord has come in and swept in and rectified them or is in the process of doing so, but just how wrong everything is around you. You're teaching your kids, you're teaching those around you that there is no hope. It wastes precious time. And I'm even going to add to this, any conversation whose motive is solidified around the grumble is taking time away from rejoicing. And I think you would agree with me that anything that is putting rejoicing uh, in, in a place where it can be uh, superseded, where it can be uh, loosed from your conversation, is dangerous territory. It wastes precious time. Number four, let's look at this final one, how grumbling affects the body of, of Christ. It breeds gossip. It, like gossip is, for lack of a better term, impregnated. Can I say that? Is that appropriate? Like it, it just, it impregnates more and more and more gossip. Because all of a sudden you go and you grumble and you murmur and you backbite and then that person now feels empowered with the same message and it, maybe it was done under the premise of a prayer request, right? So hey, I just, man, can I, I don't know if I should tell you this, but we really need to be praying for this person. Oh really, like what's going on? Well, they confess to me, you know, that they're struggling with X, Y, Z. Oh really, did they really? Yeah, we really need to pray for them. And, and instead of, that meeting, turning to two believers on their face in prayer, like they're already texting one of their, dude, did you hear about so-and-so? I can't believe. Will you pray for them, please? No, but I'll certainly pass it on and gossip, you know? <laughs> I'll certainly continue if you've seen VeggieTales, the rumor weed. Like, I'll, I'll keep it going, right? No, no problem. So it feels impossible, kind of. I want to get into your heart. I want to get into my heart. It feels impossible. Like, how, how do we really eradicate grumbling from our conversation? What if our conversation literally, literally never, ever had a hint of grumbling in it? Can I, could you imagine that? And some of you are like, yeah, I can imagine it. It's the Truman Show. Have you seen it, right? Isn't that a sad reality? When the thought of a joyous people controlled by the cause of Christ feels so, listen, far-fetched, how do we eradicate it? I want to propose something to you. It's in this word. It's in the therefore. Because remember, verse 14 only comes after the therefore. So what is in the therefore? How, how does then this grumbling get eradicated? Well, let me show you specifically what the before the therefore was. Next slide. This is in the verses that we just saw. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, like why in the world do you have any reason to grumble? In fact, let's say it this way specifically. Look at this. I hope this makes sense to you in an understanding. Next slide. Here's, listen, if, if Jesus is your king, there is no reason to grumble. If he's not your king, grumble away. We, again, we can't expect a non-believer not to grumble. They have reason to grumble. Can we agree? But believers in this room, we must not be affected by the grumbling of the non-believers. It's not just the toil with other believers, my friends. It's the hopelessness of those who don't know the truth and depth of Jesus where all of a sudden we find ourselves in workplaces and classrooms and restaurants and gas stations hearing the murmurs and the grumblings from those who have reason to grumble. And then we find our heart indulging. We're like, oh yeah, that, that is true. That is reason. Instead of, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. I, I can understand why you're grumbling. I would grumble too if I was hopeless. I would complain too if every day I had to lay my head on the pillow with no concept of love. Mark, man, that seems like a harsh statement. Well, the scripture tells me that God is love. Which means if you don't know God, can we make a statement that you don't know love? If God's the definition of it, then I don't know how else to say it. The Bible's either true or not. But what I find in us, right, is we're indulging in the conversations with non-believers and, and not understanding what's going on. Of course the hopeless will grumble. Now, um, there's many examples uh, throughout the Gospels where the disciples, and I'm not calling them now non-believers, though certainly pre-Holy Spirit, they have the wrestlings, where we get to watch their journey and Jesus not indulge. Uh, there's one great example I love in the Gospel of Luke where uh, the kids are being brought to Jesus and there uh, are even some implications in the Greek that they're touching him and they're all over him. And the disciples, like, they, they start like beating the kids away. And I picture them like grumbling amongst each other. Like, you kidding these stupid kids, you know? And they're like, Jesus, like, we need to get these kids out of here. <laughs> Can you imagine this? Like, these kids just want to be around Jesus. And, and so, you know, I, I picture Peter like, can you, can you, like, what's wrong with this four-year-old? He wants to be near the Christ. Forget it. Like, hey, you know, Bartholomew, you'll take care of that kid. You know, take him out back, give him a switch or something. Help him figure it out, you know? And instead of, yeah, you're right, disciples, like these kids are commies. Instead, what Jesus says is, no, let, let the little kids come to me. Let the children come to me. Let them enjoy fellowship. So, listen, can we, can we go for it here? Can we go for it? At the core of you, if Jesus is your king, I want to encourage you with, you have no reason at all to grumble. There's never a reason. Listen, I don't care how bad the weather is. The sickness may be horrific. The finances may be bleak. The relationship may be over. But my friends, in Christ, we have no reason to grumble. 
because the gospel always supersedes every reality that we have here and now. Listen, could you imagine if we shared in that truth together? Could you imagine if it was more than a myth and it became our reality? Now, Paul knows that the opportunities are great. Even for Philippi, there's tremendous persecution, struggling. He hasn't seen them in a while. That's why he's encouraging them with this. And not just that, but also quarreling or debating. He's like, this is all a waste of time, he says. Then things get super beautiful. Next slide, check this out. He adds this. Do all these things, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Look, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is huge. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Let's do some work here. This is a little bit tricky. Now, if you've ever been on a four-wheeler or a jet ski, this is for you, okay? There's this humbling moment as a man when you're going to go on a ride on someone else's four-wheeler and jet ski and that person happens to be a man as well. You guys know what I'm talking about? When your buddy's like, hey, you want to, you know, let's go for a ride on my four-wheeler. You're like, right on. And you're like looking for the keys. He's like, oh, no, hop on back. And you're like, no, like, this is kind of weird, you know, like, right? Like, where do, so you're like, you're trying to be cool, right? So you're trying just to grab the back rack there. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? But you're going to be like going on mudding trails, okay? Same, things happens with, same thing happens with the jet ski, right? Especially in the ocean or the Lake of the Ozarks, which is pretty much the same difference, okay, right? Where there's like six-foot swells, Right? Oh, yeah, this would be great. You go on that jet ski, and you're trying to grab that little small bar that's in the back, trying to play it cool, right? You hit that first wave, or you get turning around, you know, an edge on a four-wheeler going about 30 with a tree in front of you. What happens? You grab that dude and bear hug like that. As much, and you're like, at first, you're like, just one arm in it, you know? You're like, maybe I can just one arm it. And then you're like, no, I'm going to die, you know? And, and so you have this sense where it's just, it's full holding on. Right. And, and, and listen, even though it seems a little bit counterintuitive or maybe even you're embarrassed by it in the reality, like you know maybe it's going to save your life. I get that kind of image here when he says hold fast. Listen, to the church in Philippi, it would have been like, listen, I know you think, I know you think that you can do this on your own, that you can muscle your way through it. Like, I I know you think that in this crooked and twisted generation and culture and world that, that man, you can muscle it. But he says, no, 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 hold fast to the what? To the word of life. Now, the word of life for the church in Philippi would have certainly been the word that was preached to them by Paul. And that word was Christ lived, Christ crucified, Christ died, Christ coming again. So that word of life is the life of Jesus. Okay, they didn't have at this point this book, but they were holding at this point reading what now we're reading in uh, the, the letter to the church in Philippi. So they had that. What he's saying is, though, you must hold fast to this thing. It may seem like you're embarrassing yourself by living by truth like this. It may seem counterintuitive 
that you're going to base your life on a book that was written, uh, inspired by God, written by God through the hands of men 2,000 years ago. That may be embarrassing, and the culture is going to try to convince you that there's all kinds of loopholes in this, and there's all kinds of craters. It may seem embarrassing, but hold fast to it. It's not a word of death. It's a word of life. It's living. It's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. He says, hold fast to it. But why does he say that? Because in verse 15, he says that you may be blameless and innocent. Now, is there any way to be blameless and innocent here on this earth? No, we're being sanctified. We're set apart now, holy in Christ. We're seen as blameless through the eyes of God, through the lens of Jesus, but he's talking here about sanctification, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, what he's saying is your lack of grumbling will be such a light in this world. Um, so in my younger years, here's how we would approach this text. Stop grumbling. All right, you guys have a good one, you know? like, And I would have sent out like a cool graphic with a poster on it that you guys could have all printed out. Yeah, I need to stop grumbling. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, that's what I need to do. Like, if I just do that, then I'm going to be who I'm supposed to be in Christ. But tonight, again, as we continually do here, it's a hard issue that's solved in the person of Christ that has missional purpose. You guys see what I'm saying? It's not just stop grumbling so you'll be a happy person. It's, my friends, we get to, in Christ as our king, leave the grumbling behind so that this world can see the kind of difference that the gospel has made on our life. Do you guys understand? Indulge in grumbling, we, just, we look just like the hopeless. They're like, like why, in, why in the world would I want what you say you have when you seem just as hopeless as I am? And it could be about frivolous things. It doesn't matter. Listen, if we appear hopeless, if we communicate hopelessness, why in the world would the, would the world want our king? They would say, heck no, I, I already got what I need and my pleasure, my lust, and my desires. We have this beautiful opportunity, Paul says, to hold fast to the word of life, to not let it go, even though it, to stand on truth in this culture will get you called a bigot, all kinds of things. But my friends, what I say is in agreement with Paul is that it's the word of life. Now he gives us a really cool example of this. Check this out in his next two verses. Verse 17. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, which that doesn't sound nice, does it? Do, do we use that kind of language, right? You go up to your friend, you're like, listen, even if I'm poured out in a drink offering later, here's what I want you to know. I'm like, it's not in our language, you know? Right, you guys don't, like that's, that hasn't appeared in a text message that you've sent someone, right? Get his heart here. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, it's a, certainly a hotly debated text. What is he talking about? Is he talking about his um, sacrifice here and now? It has certain allusions to the Old Testament and the drink offering and the fastest of sacrifice. Uh, is, he, is he talking about the, the, the suffering now in prison? Is he talking about his future death? Well, there's kind of issues on both sides. He's just told us in, earlier uh, in, in Philippians that he's confident he's going to be let out. And we all know at, this, at least in this prison stand he will be. He will eventually be killed. Either way, he's talking about suffering for Christ. Either way. 
So he says, look, if, if I'm to suffer, if I'm to even like take on or be poured out as a drink offering, suffer upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. He's connecting, remember, their gift. The church in Philippi is given sacrificially, financially, with time and gifts. I am glad and will rejoice with you all. He leaves not grumbling and provides a practical example. It's beautiful. He doesn't say, hey, if I'm poured out as a drink offering, I want you to know, I want you to know, wink, wink, that it was all done for all of you. And I want you to know how awesome I am. And I want you to know how tough it was. He says, no, I'm going to rejoice. And, and then what, he, what does he say? And, a, and all, like something that seems kind of twisted. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Like as I suffer, if I'm poured out, whether it be my death or my suffering now, he says rejoice with me. So listen, now let's agree together. Persecution, suffering for Christ, can we all agree? One of the most difficult things that anyone could experience. Can we agree with that? Very, very difficult, not easy. And yet he goes right there and he says, I am going to rejoice. And not just me, but I'm going to ask that we all rejoice together. That's the power of the gospel. Completely counterintuitive. Takes something that should lead to grumbling and instead provides a means for rejoicing and sat, being satisfied in the sovereign hand of God. It's, it's beautiful. Now, these next two sections seem random, but I want to propose to you that they're not. Okay, so first let's talk about Timothy, our good friend Timothy. Check this out. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. Now, for those of you that don't know who Timothy is, he was a young man when Paul first met him. He was a believer, and he quickly became one of Paul's nearest and dearest disciples. Uh, he was called a son in the faith. Uh, some of you guys have heard here before because we talk about it often that Paul sent Timothy away to be circumcised and then to come back and be his disciple, which isn't a like, natural way of greeting, right? Go get circumcised. Come back and you're going to follow me as we follow Christ. Like, again, that's not how we talk, but that's what Timothy does. And he starts going on missionary journeys with Paul. He becomes a son in the faith. Look at the love here. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Again, like means for rejoicing. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I love that. That's the pastor's heart. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. You know how this is. You know how encouraged we can be. You know why we have means of rejoicing. I hope, therefore, here's the hope, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will, will come also. What's his purpose in sending this? He's saying, look, like, look, look church. I know there's all kinds of reasons for you to start to grumble. Where's Paul? Is he dead? We haven't heard from him in a, we haven't heard from him in a while. Like is, is he forgotten us? Is he does he even care? Affirmation from a brother that reverses the grumbling heart and turns it to focus on Christ. Here we go, body of Christ. It's not just by the gospel leave our grumbling. It's actually proactive the other way. It's you and I's voice to one another become battlers of grumbling in how we testify and how we provide hope 
in how we talk about what the Lord is doing. You guys see what I'm saying? We become proactive in our communication, foreseeing that grumbling might happen. Parents, you have such an unbelievable opportunity to model this for your kids. Okay, you do this naturally sometimes. Okay, so my daughter Avery had a really scary experience, okay? Uh, So my mom um, takes uh, our kids kind of one at a time in the summer and just spoils them rotten for a couple days and blesses them. And so Heidi calls me and she starts telling me the story and I'm like, oh my goodness, Avery's at a Chinese restaurant with my mom, okay? And, And you guys know Chinese buffets, it's like, you know, 17 different ways to make chicken. I mean, that's what a Chinese buffet is. Praise the Lord for it, right? I mean, it's unbelievable. So listen to this. She gets a sharp, hard piece of chicken lodged in her throat, and she is now choking. And so my mom, thankfully, was a nurse, like literally had to do the Heimlich on my daughter. This is two days ago. And so I'm hearing this story on the phone, like already, like, you know, like, no, this did not, right? And so, and so you already start processing okay, like how can I now shepherd Avery's heart in this? You know, and, and Heidi said she's really not wanting to talk about it, but I'm like, no, like, I, like I, I want to let her know like how much I'm with her and how compassionate I am to her. And, and so we get on FaceTime and I'm, I'm just like, Avery, like, so tell me, like, how are you doing and what's going on in your heart and how are you? She's like, I'm fine. I'm like, but can we cry together? Like, can we, you know, can, I'm gonna hug, like, I'll just hug you through the phone. No, Daddy, I'm good. It was a piece of chicken, you know. It's all out now. She's like smiling, you know. But but the heart is I want to be proactive in conversation to take what could be in her mind, like why did this happen? And instead, like shape her understanding of what the gospel can do even in hardship. Listen, church, we get to be that for one another. Uh, We got that experience on Saturday, right? Like some of you start walking around and you start painting the doors, okay? And, and seriously, this is no exaggeration. Some of the doors have taken eight and nine coats, okay? And it's oil-based, so you're kind of getting high while painting. And so you're a little bit hallucinating, right? But listen, you, you, you had this experience, okay? Like you start painting the doors and there's that sense in you like, this is the most horrific thing in my life. But some proactive encouragement from others, some folks who wrestle together, hey, listen, like, let's stay focused here. Like, yes, this is, you know, but let's put it all in perspective. We're painting a door in a school that we wouldn't have been in before. Like, let's, let's enjoy, like, the role that the body of Christ can play in proactive leadership and servitude and guidance, anti-grumbling is seen right here in the heart of Paul. Knowing that it takes a whole lot, he hits the hammer again. Check this out. He's like, that's not enough. Let's keep going. Next slide, okay? Now he hits our good friend, okay? I have thought it necessary to send you uh, Epaphroditus. Remember this guy? We talked about him at the beginning of Philippians, okay? Uh, This guy was probably the guy who planted the church in Philippi. I thought it necessary to send you uh, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Now, we come to find out, even in this text and a little bit of writing outside of this, that, that Epaphroditus and his relationship with Philippi could have been contentious. Again, Paul knowing, maybe the church is grumbling about this, he hits the hammer, verse 26, for he has been longing for you all. You see his language? Trust me, he's been longing for you all. And has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Okay? 
Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Incredible language. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may what? Rejoice to see him again, that things wouldn't at all be contentious, but a blessing, and then I may be less anxious. Hey, somebody better celebrate here. Paul is human. Look at, look at what he says, that I may be less anxious. Now, I'm not saying that this is necessarily a, a sinful anxiety, but he experiences anxiousness. Can we just say, thank the Lord? Because you read Paul, you're like gladiator, rock star, braveheart, all messed in one, right? Like he never fails, right? And a little bit of a Jonas brother or something. Next slide. Okay, here we go. Look at this. That was sinful. Forgive me. Verse 29. Okay. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He's being proactive in his communication so that the body in Philippi has a chance to have their grumbling thwarted at the root. Every single one of us have those opportunities in our discipling relationships and the brothers and sisters that we journey with all the time. Uh, to not share cheesy Christian cliches, but to share the word of life that we're holding fast to and how it grips the heart of men and women and how we can share in that truth. When I was a kid, next slide, I memorized that all the time. You guys remember this? If you grew up with the NIV, um, it was be joyful always. I always thought this was a command. Be joyful always. You guys know how the verse continues? Pray without ceasing and what? Give thanks in all circumstances. Remember that? When I used to read it, here's what it felt like. You will smile. Remember, like when you're pulling into church with your parents? And everybody be yelling. Right? And then your parents are like, you, you will smile when we get in there. I will smack, I will put a smile on that face if you are not smiling. Now let's take it a step further. Some of you spouses, you get to family gatherings. Christmas time. Okay, the Christmas drive, not so fun. Okay? You pull up to the in-laws and your spouse looks at you. You better not act like, right? I always used to read this like it was Paul's way of saying, you better smile. But now I don't see it as a command. Tonight I see it as a response. Can you guys stand with me? I see the words rejoice always, which have tremendous implications. In response to this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus 
so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So I always used to think that rejoicing always was like something to be achieved. Or a command to be followed. Hey Christian, you better smile so the world can see that we're a light to it. But tonight I propose something much different. Rejoice always. The opposite of grumbling is response. It's response from people who are far from hopeless. It's the response from people who have been saved from death. It's the response from people who now have the Spirit residing in them with all hope in a lost and dying world. Rejoicing always is now our mantra. It's not just an image, but a lifestyle that's given us by the Spirit of God to show the world that we are changed. That the gospel has done a work in us. That we have no reason to grumble. Albeit bad weather, or the worst sickness, or the loss of a child. You and I in Christ can rejoice always. And so to me tonight, that means we should worship in some joy tonight. Amen? That means we have the opportunity to cry out in joy. That means I don't have to say, put the smile on Christian. I can just say, the person and work of Jesus is enough. So let's respond to him. Come on.